Um, So we will continue through the Gospel of Matthew in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 24 today. The poet Muriel Rukeyser, you probably haven't heard of her, once wrote, the universe is made up of stories, not of atoms. Let me say it again. The universe is made up of stories, not of atoms. Now I wonder, does that delight you? Or does it irritate you? I imagine that there are those of us who hear that and respond, yes, that's so beautiful. I want to think about the world that way. And others of you might be thinking, that's cute. It's fine for a poet to say, but really the universe is made up of atoms. I mean, stories are things that happen to people, and people are made up of atoms, Therefore, the universe is made up of atoms. Well, I would argue, I wouldn't argue, but if I had to, I would argue that both can be true. Whether you see the universe as materials or as narratives, neither one denies that the other one exists. It's just as silly to say that there aren't any stories as it is to say there aren't any atoms. They are just two very different ways of looking at creation, but it matters. If you see the world, for example, from the perspective that everything is made up of atoms, that says something about the way you think about the world, what you think is most basic, what you think the building blocks of creation are. It also reveals what you go looking for when you try to interpret events or when you seek purpose. In Matthew 6, 19 through 24, Jesus makes a series of statements that can redefine how we see the world, not in terms of atoms and stories, but yet another way, in terms of earth and heaven. And if we'll accept Jesus' teaching, we'll not only see the world in a different way, but we'll see the world as it truly is. So stand with me. As we read the word of the Lord, Matthew 6, 19 through 24. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Please be seated, and I'll pray for us. Lord, 
Work in our hearts this morning. Give us eyes to see the true light. Awaken us to where we seek earthly treasure and where we walk in darkness. Teach us to serve and to love you and even to treasure you with our whole heart this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Today's passage breaks up really nicely into three parts. The previous section, which Caleb finished last week, fell under the theme of practicing righteousness, you might remember, by giving, by praying, and by fasting. And now Jesus shifts to a new, though not unrelated, topic, and he calls it treasure. Jesus has already contrasted the reward that you might get from practicing righteousness to be seen by people with the reward that comes from the Father in heaven. In fact, throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus follows this pattern of alternatives. You've heard this, but I tell you this. And do not pray this way, but pray like this. In short, there are two ways of righteousness and two kinds of reward. And we must choose. And so picking up on this theme of rewards, it's not hard to see how Jesus transitions here to a discussion of treasure. And these verses are thick with a sense of alternatives, you see. Jesus gives three, three sayings in a row, each one presenting two options. There it is. And each one punctuated by this sort of punchy conclusion. First, he gives two treasures, either in heaven or on earth, in verses 19 through 21. Next, there are two internal conditions, either darkness or light, in verses 22 and 23. And finally, there are two masters, either money or God, in verse 24. Through this exploration of alternatives, Jesus doesn't leave room for partial responses. Each case is given as an absolute. We must choose between two treasures, light sources, and masters. So let's begin with verses 19 through 21, which challenge us to answer the question, where is your treasure? Jesus says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust, moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So first, Jesus presents us with the two alternative treasures, those on earth and those in heaven. He begins in verse 19 by warning against earthly treasures that we might lay up for ourselves. It's easy enough to picture, I suppose, something like this. Do not try to accumulate stuff on earth, or don't build up a collection of things to be stored away. On the surface, it seems to be some pretty solid advice against hoarding and the inherent risk of any investment. Consider any possession that you have that can change its value over time according to decay, or theft, or according to depreciation, or inflation, markets, regulations, 
Anything that can diminish falls into this category. The overabundance of long-term centers for storage is a pretty good sign that Jesus was on to something about human nature. As has been our habit, we should probably take a moment to reflect on all the stuff we already have and let Jesus' words make us uncomfortable. I get the impression that he says this in such a way that is supposed to get an immediate reaction so, so that we'll pay attention to the rest. So, if there's anyone here today who has possessions, you should listen. Jesus continues in verse 20 with the alternative. Lay up treasures in heaven. He doesn't describe this heavenly treasure except to say that it's impervious to moth, rust, thieves. In other words, the treasure that you lay up in heaven is permanent and therefore inherently surpasses earthly treasure. We'll come back to the question of what heavenly treasure is in a moment, but for now, let's agree that choosing between these two alternatives is easy. It's supposed to be easy. Earthly treasures fade and pass away, while heavenly treasures are secure, even eternal. They have no vulnerabilities, in fact. As Peter writes, as we read earlier, our heavenly inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, and it is kept in heaven for us. What a contrast. If we can accept this teaching, laying up treasure on earth instead of heaven would be foolish, risky, dangerous even. So let's take a step back and consider what Jesus is actually prohibiting. I mean, it's not just in first century Israel that wealth is seen as a sign of God's blessing, isn't it? Even God's endorsement of a person or of a behavior And not only did Jesus spend a lot of time teaching and trying to undermine the misconception behind that belief, but I can't help but notice the oldest book of the Bible, the book of Job, blew that wrong-mindedness out of the water long ago. And yet it lingers, even in the church. And I don't mean just prosperity gospel. And so, I think we should make a distinction. We should observe that Jesus is talking about laying up treasures and not receiving gifts. What do I mean? Well, gifts are good things, and God, as Father, likes to give good gifts to his children. After all, many earthly things could rightly be characterized as gifts from God. Good gifts. They are given not to be shunned, rejected, but rather to be enjoyed. Not to mention that many, if not all, of the Bible's instructions concerning giving and offering and sharing possessions would be impossible if possessions were eliminated altogether. 
We could go on to talk about principles of counting the cost or caring for family members. But even without all of that, I think we can agree that this is not a call to poverty. The warning is not against possessions in themselves, but against what Jesus calls treasures on earth. So you might be asking yourself, well, couldn't we just say that laying up treasures on earth is a question of excess more than anything. Well, we could, but that only helps to an extent. Play it out with me. Don't store up means to collect, not to collect possessions in excess. Good advice, to be sure. And it would have sufficiently gut-punched that first century mindset of prosperity as the surest sign of God's favor. But if that's our guide, how do we determine if we are saving to excess? How much is wise, prudent, or safe even, especially given the uncertainty of today's financial climate? I mean, can you really have too much? Is it excess if I don't spend it freely so I'm not displaying my wealth? Here's the problem. Everyone has their own standard. And most often that standard reveals itself something like this. That guy who has more treasure than I do is either living the good life and I'm missing out, or he's gone too far and he's a picture of greed and selfishness. What we fail to see is that there is always someone standing behind us in line and making those same judgments about us. We have no standard to determine what is excess. Jesus' saying, in fact, carries the assumption that everyone has treasures. So it's no good to compare yourself with others. You'll just find yourself saying, I'm not storing up treasure, but I sure wish I could store up as much as that guy. <laughs> you won't get very far thinking like that. So returning to our guiding distinction, gifts and treasures... If we allow for possessions, and if we understand that God can give gifts that may look the same as treasures, how do we tell the difference? I'll give you a few distinctions between gifts and treasures. First, treasures on earth are stored up, as Jesus says, but merely as an accumulation of wealth. Gifts, on the other hand, are put to use. Gifts are given to be applied and enjoyed. Secondly, gifts are received as gifts and are given in the context of a relationship. So while you may celebrate a windfall or you may find security in a surplus, you give thanks for a gift. Thirdly, Along those same lines, the gift of a father 
builds up your confidence and comfort in his care for you. Treasures become the object of your security in themselves, which is not only foolish because they're vulnerable, but more so because they are by nature temporary. In short, the very same earthly possession could be seen as a gift or as a treasure. So don't take God's gifts and turn them into treasures. But we've been talking about treasures on earth. What about these treasures in heaven? We've already pointed out that one major contrast between earthly and heavenly treasure is that earthly treasure is subject to deterioration, whereas heavenly treasure is permanent. But the contrast is so much more than that, much more fundamental than that. So when we think about heavenly treasure, if we imagine some kind of heavenly mansion or a heavenly treasure box of goodies, that would be a self-defeating lesson. Exchanging earthly gold for heavenly gold is meaningless. We're not exchanging one collection of knickknacks for another. We're considering two categories of treasure that have no comparison. And in order to answer what it is, I'm going to ask another question. How do we store up this treasure in heaven? Because I think especially in the Sermon on the Mount, there seems to be a ready answer through righteousness. We lay up treasure in heaven by living out God's will on earth as it is in heaven. Let me offer some other expressions of heavenly treasure seeking. These are going to sound familiar. Seek wisdom. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. Pursue peace. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor. Love your enemy. Pray for your persecutor. And what each of these treasures have in common is that each one, from wisdom to love, from peace to righteousness, is found in Christ. So, in opposition to the swarm of competing earthly treasures, there is one worthy object of your treasuring heart. Invest that heart in Christ. On the other hand, beware of anything, any object, any goal, any dream, any principle, any theory that attracts your heart in the slightest, away from the all-sufficient, all-satisfying, all-supreme treasure of Christ. Let me take another approach. Faith, hope, and love are the three that remain, Paul says. This is not too different from saying that moth, rust, and thieves can't take them away. A life of heavenly treasure will trust in the care of Christ, will find its security 
in the faithfulness of Christ and will overflow with love of Christ. So to review, Jesus isn't giving financial advice on making wise investments as much as he is calling us to redefine what our treasure really is altogether. So don't make the categorical mistake of thinking that storing up treasure in heaven means that the things that you want on earth will be waiting for you in heaven, like some sort of patient prosperity gospel. Don't exchange gold on earth for gold in heaven. Storing up treasure in heaven ultimately means seeing Christ as your treasure. Speaking of seeing Christ, the next verses offer another challenge. What is your light source? Listen again to verses 22 and 23. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Again, Jesus presents two alternatives. This time, light and darkness. Just as the question of treasure is an issue of the heart, the question of light is an issue of the eye. I would quickly point out that we didn't even need to clarify that the heart we're talking about is not the literal blood-pumping organ in the body. Neither should we stumble over this image of the eye. After all, the symbolism of the eye and therefore seeing, as well as the themes of light and darkness, are familiar territory if we've spent any time reading the Bible. Throughout the scriptures, and even in the Sermon on the Mount so far, there's an understood relationship between the heart and the eyes. In these verses now, Jesus puts these two images together so that what we treasure becomes the light source for our eyes. Let's unpack this. Just as when I walk around, what I see and how well I see it guides me so that I can navigate across the room, up and down stairs, over curbs, and around over-affectionate cats and Legos and leopard-stuffed sharks, or, sorry, that became a little personal. I always have to work Arthur in here somehow, but he's not here. The point is, if I see well and have enough light around me, I can avoid obstacles and find a safe path. Likewise, there's a similar process going on internally. It has nothing to do with whether I have good vision or bad vision, and it has everything to do with whether I have eyes to see or not. It has everything to do with whether there is light inside me or darkness inside me. We could paraphrase the idea this way. If I have light, I can see the world as it truly is, and I can make a right assessment of the various aspects of my life, including, of course, my treasures. Notice how in the previous verses, seeing the truth about earthly treasures informs our relationship to them. The deciding factor when it comes to my understanding of the world and how I walk in faith is not whether the lights are on in the room, but whether there is light 
inside me. We could see Jesus' statement here as a narrower comment on greed versus generosity, perhaps. Seeing with good eyes is to be generous, and seeing with bad eyes is to be greedy or jealous or stingy or something. That fits the theme of the context, but it doesn't seem to me to carry enough of the weight of the image. So I would argue that these verses, especially the theme of light and darkness, expand the idea to include everything, all of reality. If you like, to interpret light and darkness as truth and deception, that would lead to an approach to treasure and money that includes easy generosity and exposes the foolishness of greed. So we get there either way, I guess. But I would hesitate to limit the expression here. Because in order to make this shift from a heart for worldly treasure to a heart for heavenly treasure requires a shift not just in resources, not just in giving more offering, not just in giving a greater percent or something like that, but an entire conversion from darkness to light even from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. Hear me. Jesus is not merely concerned with your giving, as if the way for you to overcome your greed and selfishness is for you to give more or to give a greater percent. The problem is in your heart. The problem is in what you treasure. Another way of saying this is that we need to see the light, the truth of the surpassing worth of Christ. Seeing the light of Christ, indeed seeing according to the light of Christ, will reorder your life, your relationships to people, and your possessions. And it will change not just how much you give, but how you use any and all of your resources. More on that in a verse or two. So, as with the first saying, where Jesus punctuated it with a sharp statement at the end, that the treasure is where the heart is, Jesus here has another sort of punchline. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? So let me put it like this. Our blindness is even more blind if we walk in darkness and think we see the light. Our blindness is even more blind if we walk in darkness and think we see the light. There's a good chance that you and I will be confused and frustrated with life, that we will struggle to see the path that God has laid before us. That's okay. Treasure Christ more. Because the greater danger is that we will exchange hope in the glory of Christ for our failing plans. It is great darkness to live a life that betrays a hope for earthly treasure, whether money or power or career or any other sense of purpose that steals your heart from Christ.
So speaking of money, Jesus has one more saying for us this morning. This time answering the challenge, who is your master? Listen again. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And so finally, Jesus presents two more alternatives, this time two masters. I hope it's clear that this final statement is a continuation of what Jesus has laid out in the first two. So, so much that the, these three say, sayings obviously make up a unit. In fact, the connection between treasures and money is so clear, we could ask, what is Jesus saying here that he didn't already say in the earlier verses? So let's consider how Jesus sets up this verse. He begins, no one can serve two masters. Hmm. At the risk of sounding irreverent, I would ask, really? Don't people have all kinds of masters? So let's think about it. We should note that Jesus doesn't have in mind here serving as employees as much as serving as slaves. Even so, you could conceivably pledge yourself to the service of two masters. You could even pledge yourself to one and serve another. Jesus doesn't mean that those things are impossibilities. He means that even if you were to do that, you would still have to choose. Especially in cases of the most loyal service, there cannot be complete or full obedience to two masters. Yes, you can have many masters, but when masters disagree, only one can be the final authority. This is what Jesus means by hating one and loving the other. The moment two masters are in conflict, I should do it like this. Your ultimate loyalty gets exposed. Turning against the commands of one master is hating or despising them. The master you serve is the one who receives your love and devotion. Makes sense. So I asked myself, why does Jesus seem to say the same thing two ways? First, hate one and love the other, then be devoted to one and despise the other. Now, it could just be a restatement for emphasis or for a pattern, but it may also be that Jesus is showing that the motivation can either be positive or negative. The motivation to serve one master over another doesn't always begin with a sense of loyalty. You could be compelled by hatred for the other in order to serve this guy out of spite. Disobedience out of spite is obedience to another master. Either way, it doesn't matter, Jesus says. There will inevitably be a conflict between the two, let alone between many masters. But Jesus' conclusion, you can't serve God and money, Let's take that and run it back through the argument. God is at odds with money. 
Heavenly treasure is at odds with earthly treasure because both attract your heart and you can't truly, wholly serve two masters. Just as you can't find your heart in two places. And God can only be served wholly. So God and money don't agree about what you should treasure. And they certainly don't agree about how you should see the world. Putting this in terms that we used earlier, money may be a good gift, but it's a bad master. If you call God your Lord and master, but store up for yourselves treasures on earth, you are fooling yourself. In fact, Jesus seems to be confronting that very type of situation. After all, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. Greed is not only an issue for the rich. It's certainly perilous to spend so much time in the presence of a false god. But it infects the poor as well. Even the poor can see money as a savior. But money can only be a savior according to earthly treasure. If you see the world with eyes filled with light, money cannot compare to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord and being found in him. Money, possessions, worldly wealth are rubbish compared to all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge found in Christ. So money's not bad, but it's a bad master. So what does that mean? We can't very well function in this world without money, can we? Well, your relationship to money is a symptom of a deeper situation. What Jesus is showing is that there's an authority structure in the world. And if we have our lives ordered properly, the way that money fits into the hierarchy of masters is best as a servant. Put another way, money must be seen as a tool to put into service of the one true master. So, Jesus is making the point about money, but it's not really a point about money. It's really a point about worship and service. He's taking something that we can see as merely a financial statement or as an encouragement to be more gracious, and he's showing that the reality of it is that you're giving your offerings, your possessions are not the focus. If we make money the focus, we will never get at the heart of the problem and we'll never fix the problem. The question is not how much money do you give. The question is, are you using money or is money using you? Who's in charge? And if you think that you're using money, you must remember that you're not the master either. You don't use money in service to yourself because money doesn't work like that. In fact, you might think that you're winning at the game of money and that you're financially secure and that you can do what you want and buy what you want. But if it's all about what you can buy, can you see how that means money is the master again? You feel like you're in control, but if all your decisions are based on what you can buy 
or all of your values are according to whether you can purchase what you want or not. Money is the master. And so you can't put money in service to yourself. Money will master you. You must put money in service to another master. Money will either be your master or money will be your tool to serve the Lord. Can you see how this has taken us full circle? There's a direct relationship between treasures on earth and and money, and there's a correspondence between treasures in heaven and the Lord, obviously. And yet in both cases, if we fixate on the financial matters, we've already lost the battle. Do you give offerings out of an obligation, maybe? Or out of some mathematical calculation that tells you what to do? Or do you give offerings to the church, to ministries, to individuals in need, because the money is of no value to you compared to the intangible things that are happening on a whole different level in heavenly places? If your heart is in heaven, your money on earth will be an opportunity for you to serve the Lord. If you'll allow just a couple final encouragements. First, seek daily to find your identity in Christ and not in wealth or power or success or career or popularity or intelligence or recognition or whatever you are thinking of right now as I'm making this list go on and on. Any and every earthly treasure can be and must be subservient to my relationship with Christ. In fact, I should see the only worth in my worldly treasures is in as much as they can build up the kingdom of God in me, in my family, in my church, in my community, and in the world. And finally, a word about heaven. Does your concept of heaven rate heavenly treasure in such a way and of such value that worldly wealth is, in fact, rubbish, as Paul says? And to put an even sharper tip on it, do you see Christ that way? The treasure of heaven is not in mansions and crowns, unless you define heavenly mansions as a place for you to dwell with God. You see, God himself must be the most precious, the most valuable thing in heaven, or heaven is not heaven. So do you see Christ as precious? Do you see Christ as most precious? Do you hold Christ in such a way that there is nothing else in heaven or on earth that you would desire in exchange for him? because he's worthy of your heart. I would encourage you to stop and think now. Is there anything in your heart that competes with Christ? Let me ask it this way. Would you allow this to be taken away from you? Fill in the blank. Would you allow this thing to be taken away from you? Would you allow this person to be taken away from you? Would you allow this dream to be taken away from you? And if it were, would you still consider yourself 
rich, filled to fullness with Christ. Is there anything that gives you a moment of hesitation? To that hesitance, I'd say, don't turn God's gift into a treasure. Find your treasure in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, give us hearts that treasure Christ above all. Lord, may we seek wisdom, hunger for righteousness, pursue peace, and may we live out the love of Christ. And as we look to Christ, may you fill us with his light so that we can see the world as it truly is, so that we may see our earthly possessions as gifts for us to use in service to you and the building up of your kingdom. It's in Jesus, the most precious, whose name we pray. Amen.